This is the Valley of Grace podcast, helping women create an empowered new chapter of life. And this is episode 109, believe it or not, episode 109. And it is entitled, Creating an Empowered New Chapter of Life After Birth Story Trauma. Okay, so we're going to go way back to 1998, and this is April of 1998. Well, we'll go back a little bit before that, actually. A few months before that, I was about uh, six months pregnant, and I had been going in for uh, my OB-GYN checkups, making sure everything was on target, and my... Uh, OB-GYN noticed that my platelet levels had started going down, okay? And she said, well, it don't seem like it's too much to worry about. We will keep an eye on it, but you should be okay. Okay, I was a little nervous. I was a first-time mom. I was 24 years old uh, at the time. And um, so I was nervous. Like I said, first time mom, and I'm thinking, pray a little level. What does that mean? Uh, you know, then you start looking up things on the computer. I looked up a little bit, you know, but um, I had a lot of questions in my mind. I had never heard about a platelet level going down. And she said she didn't feel there was anything to be concerned about. We would monitor it, uh, monitor my blood pressure, monitor uh my thyroid levels because I was hypothyroid, but you know, we were just thinking everything would be fine and be good to go. So what ended up happening was um, we got pretty close to my due date and she decided that whether I had uh, dilated or not, I was going to be induced on the 23rd of April. And it worked out because at the time I was uh, taking a class at a computer business school downtown Chicago. And so I'm like, okay, this is perfect, Lord. I'll get my final exam done earlier and then I can uh, be prepared to have this baby. You know, so the timing was perfect. And then I figured I'd take some few months from off school and then I would go back to get my bachelor's degree because I was in between uh, schools and trying to decide what I really wanted to do as opposed to what it was I should do based upon what everybody else had been telling me, okay? So, um, we were watching the levels, time went on, and as time went on, the numbers were steadily going down. My plate levels was just going down, down, down. And like I said, this started somewhere between six and a half, seven months pregnant. Okay, so um, the day of my induction came and my ex-husband dropped me off at the hospital. And what had happened, he was doing his intern. He had to do some field work. And I had requested for him to take off so he could be with me so I wouldn't be by myself. And even though his mom and my mom were scheduled to sit with me, they were going to come maybe two, three hours, like maybe two hours after he dropped me off. They would be um, arrived. They were going to arrive at the hospital. 
So um, I did not want to be there at any point by myself because of the fact that I felt like I needed some support. Uh, this was my first time having a baby. Uh, I didn't know how things were going to go. And um, for any type of thing that's emotional, no matter what it is, male or female, having support there is what helps to ground us. Having that community and that emotional and mental support, spiritual support, is what helps to keep us grounded and on target. And so I remember the nurse coming in and me feeling um, shamed and embarrassed because I knew that I was profiled. She acted as a father of the baby involved in the baby's life. And I knew it was because I was black that she was saying this. So I was hurt because of that. And I was also hurt because I had asked my ex-husband to talk to uh, his field work supervisor to allow him to take a half a day. I mean, take the whole day off of field work instead of me texting him when it was close to the time and him leaving field work and coming to be with me. I just felt that he should have been there the whole day. And so um, trying to digest that, being there any point of time by myself in the hospital room and getting ready to have a baby was not a good feeling. And when the nurse said that, it just added on to um, insecurities and my already fragile state because no one was there with me at the time. So uh, within a couple of hours, my mom and my ex-mother-in-law made it to the hospital and were in the room there supporting me. And I was scheduled to be induced. They gave me the medicine, but even though it was causing me to have labor pains, it was not enough for anything major to go on. So my doctor said, you know what? <laughs> we need to... Um, quick in this process. So what she did was, because uh, even though the uh, monitor showed I was having contractions, like I said, they were not intense enough. I was not hurting that bad. Really, hardly, hardly feeling it at all. And maybe because I, in fact, I have, have rough cycles anyway. So she said, well, I'm just going to kind of help you along. I'm going to um, tear the placenta a little bit. And that should help you along. And I remember she did that and it felt like literally um, like my whole world had ended. And I have already signed papers saying, no, I do not want to uh, be giving a, um, the epidural. I was nervous about not having control over feeling um, my body parts, my legs or anything like that. And so I said, no, I'm not going to do that. So once she broke the placenta and I felt like my world had literally come to an end when I couldn't take it any longer, I asked the nurse, is it something you can give me? And she said, oh, you want that for door? I said, no, not that for door, just something to relax me. So she gave me, they gave me something to relax me. And because I guess because I'm not a person that takes medicine, I was so relaxed that I literally fell asleep for a while. <laughs> I fell asleep, but that didn't last long. I woke up and I was in so much pain. I thought about dying. I forgot the cold that I had, uh, that my ex-husband and I had decided 
we would use because I was going to have either my mom or his mom to page him with that cold so he can let his field work supervisor know and then come to the hospital to be with me. So I was in so much pain, I couldn't remember. I'm like, did we say hello or did we say this? I couldn't remember. So they texted, they sent him a message. He said he was confused. And I told him, no, I think it was this. And then, but anyways, he didn't make it there. Um, maybe around one something in the afternoon, he got there. And um, I ended up delivering our son at about 4.20 something in the afternoon. Now, prior to uh, the doctor uh, pulling my son out, she talked to me and to uh, both my mom and my ex-mother-in-law and said, you know, we're thinking that she should be fine. She shouldn't have any problems. The worst case scenario, we will do a blood transfusion. But we don't think, I don't think that there's going to be any major problems. Okay, so uh, the baby came out. And then, of course, you know, they have to make sure that everything is out of you for safety uh, purposes and whatnot. And so the doctor was pushing on my stomach and everything. She said, I'm just going to do this to make sure everything's out and you're good to go. Uh, but then what happened is an extremely large amount of blood came out. It was just unnatural. And um, it took her by surprise. She told the nurse to bring this bowl over. The nurse comes over with this huge stainless steel bowl collects that. And it, I mean, it literally was like out of a movie scene. It was, it was just unreal. And then she's pushing some more and said, okay, I'm, you're good. But then another round of it that was even worse than the first one. And I saw her face. She realized what she was doing, but it was too late. I'd already suffered a look on her face of shock, like, I can't believe this is happening type of look. She tells the nurse, bring another bowl, go grab 40 cc's of whatever the medication was. And then next thing I know is this long needle. I'm getting a shot in my right shoulder. And it's like sigh of relief. And before you knew it, here we go again. It was unbelievable as far as the volume. And at this point, the doctor's panicking. She's like, where's this coming from? And she starts calling out body parts. Not coming from the uterus, not coming from the cervix. You know, and she's just going on and on and panicking because it's happening faster than she could really handle the situation. And it just goes to show you, too, how she thought everything was going to be okay because what the doctors learned uh, in their books, according to medical books, you're not in danger until you're 100 or below. My platelet level was 112. They took blood work even before, uh, once I got to the hospital that morning. So according to the numbers, I should have been okay. Well, we forget, even as professionals or whatever it is we learn, there are always things that uh, go outside of the rules, exceptions to those rules. There are always exceptions to the rules. And so what may be somebody's norm, what might be norm for one person, for another person, they could stroke out. So 112 was actually dangerous for me. And what number really was dangerous? Because it was at 112. 
So who knows what the danger point was for me? Because medically they say 100. I was at danger at 112. And like I said, who knows? It could have been 120. All I know is my numbers were 112. And I was literally at a life or death point of almost bleeding to death. And while this was all going on, we had two things happening. The doctor literally trying to save my life. My mother and ex-mother-in-law and my ex-husband passing the baby back and forth. Then I remember seeing my mother and ex-mother-in-law passing my son back and forth. And I remember my ex-husband going, look at his head, look at his head, look at his head, it's so big. Because of the fact that the doctor did not want to cut me. So when she pulled my son's head out, it came out pretty long, like a long egg-shaped head. So he was so focused on the baby's head and, you know, they were like excited. And I could see my mother still looking at me out the corner of her eye wondering, was I going to be okay? So it was like a lot of different things, like me being concerned about my health, but at the same time, because of what was going on with me, my brain would not even let me absorb what had actually happened at that time. I knew that I was in danger, but my brain wouldn't let me realize that. And I saw the look on my mother's face as they're passing the baby back and forth. And I hear my ex-husband, look at his head, look at his head. And I was thinking, you know, like, okay, look at his head, but I'm over here, like, literally fighting for my life. And so um, what ended up happening was that after one more shot of the 40 cc's of whatever medicine it was, the bleeding stopped, but I had lost so much blood. And I didn't realize it until later that um, later on that evening when I got to go to the bathroom and a nurse asked me if I was going to be okay, I said, oh, yeah, I think I'm fine. Because my numbers had started to go back up to the way they were supposed to right after having the baby. And I didn't realize that I should not have done that. So I get to the bathroom and I start thinking, hmm. I feel kind of weird. I was holding on to the sink and all of a sudden just rushed on me and I started like seeing black and I uh, said, oh, maybe I'll be okay. I used the bathroom and then I hollered out. The nurse came and got me and she's husband, husband, husband. And my ex-husband got the other side of me and got me back to the bed. But overnight, the nurses kept coming in and all my numbers were going back to normal. The thing about it, after all of this happened, um, it was very scary for me. I kept thinking that I bought some iron pills and took those, but I kept thinking, what if I, while my ex-husband was at work, what if I passed out here in the house while care, caring for the baby? That's what I was nervous about. Even though my numbers had started going back up, I was still taking iron because I still felt a little bit lightheaded, but nowhere near like it was in the hospital. But that was part of what I kept thinking. And then I just had to pray about it and go on because my mother was working her own job at the time. My ex-mother-in-law had her own responsibilities at home and she was able to come and spend like two, three days with me uh, a few times to do laundry, but then go right back, take the train back home. Uh, but uh, I was basically on my own. My uh, ex-husband was doing his field work and finishing up and doing his uh, small part-time job that he had. So I just had to make it work. And it was by the grace of God, I was okay. 
Now, what the specialists tell you, the professionals, okay, when I say professionals, I'm saying like a therapist, psychiatrist, psychologist, et cetera, okay, slash, slash, slash. <laughs> you recover better from trauma right after it happens when you have someone that you can immediately bond with, someone who is there with you physically is better. But even if you can talk to them on the phone, just someone to be able to connect to immediately helps to reduce the long-lasting effects of trauma. And that could have been a reason why it did not hit me had I been there totally, completely by myself. Or maybe if it was just me and my ex-husband, I don't know how I would have done, but it was me and him and my mom and my ex-mother-in-law. So that could have been the reason why I did not feel the effects right then. But what I had to do is have enough courage once I got home to know I can't walk around in fear. I hope and pray I don't pass out. If I get the feeling, I have to lay down, but I cannot continue to walk around in fear. That was the first part of the empowered new chapter of life for me after having him. The second thing was... Um, I really did not totally process the whole event and I did not know that. So let's rewind to, this is 2021, about four years ago, I'm in a mom's group and I'm hearing a story about somebody else that almost died from bleeding to death. And I literally held on to the table in front of me with all of my might and was bracing myself. And I could tell that I literally was coming undone. I was literally unraveling and going down a downward spiral. So from all that time, from 1998 to 2017, the trauma of that event had not hit me the way that it really, I guess, could have hit me initially after it happened. And like I said, it could have been because of the fact that I had family members there. Now, what it was is that when it hit me, it wasn't like I was spiraling out or disassociating or anything like that. It hit me, the trauma hit me as extreme grief and crying out in my soul. And me going through the different, having flashbacks of the different scenes. But mainly it was extreme heavy grief, like somebody has died heavy grief. That's how deep it was. And I said, ooh, after I heard the news about the other person, I was like, this is not going to be pretty. This is going to be really intense when it comes up because I know if it just came up and I can see now how much of an effect this, this it, uh, had on my body that's residing down in there. When it comes up later, I'm going to have to let it rip, <laughs> so to speak. And I did end up doing that. Now, had I not allowed myself to cry really deep and hard, um, as if a life had been lost, which my life was all really at stake, literally, had almost been gone. So if it had not, um, if I had 
and not given in as far as pressing in, I would use those terms, pressing in and allowing myself to feel, uh, allow myself to feel those emotions and to grieve it out, those deep, heavy emotions. It would have stayed in my body and I could have just been walking around a mess. And that's what happens when we, when the pain comes up and it's like your brain's like, okay, I'm ready to resolve this. And we fight it. We are actually doing our bodies, our souls, our spirits a disservice because our brains and our bodies are ready to deal with it. But we're going like, "Mm -mm, I'm not touching that. And so we are prolonging the trauma. We are impacting relationships at home, at church, at ministry, et cetera. But we are prolonging it. And so I had to um, just feel it, just press in and feel it little by little. And there are some times still now, every blue moon where something from that time happens and I have to allow myself to feel it. But most of it, the, the, the deep, deep part of the beginning, I was able to feel right around that time. But I promise you, it was not pleasant. And so my empowered new chapter of life after birth story trauma was deciding not to try to stuff that. Uh, I had already had experiences stuffing and suppressing, and I promise you, it was not a pretty sight for me doing that. And so, as Dr. Phil would say, how did that work out for you? It did not work out for me from suppressing my emotions from what had happened to me before. So, when it came to this particular event, there was no way in the world I was going to go and suppress these emotions that were deep inside of my soul that needed to be healed for me almost dying literally uh, on that hospital bed after uh, giving birth to my son. And for second part of birth story trauma, as you would think the first part was enough, right? So the second part of the trauma was I am pregnant with child number two, my daughter, and I get to about six or seven months pregnant, and I started dealing with some low-level depression, and the depression came on for several reasons. Now, with my son, I did not have the physical presence, the physical support, nor the emotional support, okay? Uh, I was going back and forth to the doctor appointments by myself uh, and having to deal with all of the stuff that was going on on my own as we both were going through school. So I felt like I was just on an island, a ship on an island by myself. And so then when it came to uh, the pregnancy with my son, I mean, with my daughter, rather, sorry. But a second pregnancy, the physical support was there because of the fact by me not driving then and, and we were living in a different location, I had to have rides to get to the hospital. So almost every single appointment, he had to pick me up from work and take me to the appointments. But there, the emotional support was still missing with this one. And so at about six months pregnant, I started to develop depression uh, because what happened, my ex-husband would come home. uh, He would see me and our son and chit-chat with us for a few minutes. He would cook dinner. 
and you'd be gone until like maybe 12, almost one in the morning. And then the whole thing would start up again. And so uh, that set up a level of depression for me because I had one child I was caring for and pregnant with another, did not have the support that I needed. And then um, the depression setting in and uh, I gained way, way more weight than I did in the second pregnancy than in the first. I gained like almost 70 pounds and um, I could tell with my breathing and walking, my body was just not used to that weight. And so uh, that also caused some of the depression. And then you get the situation where um, after I gave birth to our daughter, I got to the point where my ex-husband withdrew all affection uh, towards me. That was the beginning of it. And so uh, between that and me dealing with postpartum depression, after having our daughter, I had a rough go. So the second pregnancy ended up being traumatic as well. And that trauma came from postpartum depression and um, having to take care of two kids by myself because what happened after I had my daughter then once again, I was still home in the evenings and every day just kept turning into the next day. And as I was trying to heal from her to be able to go back to work, when she turned, um, I think I went back somewhere around seven or eight weeks, somewhere between six and eight weeks, I went back to work. But before that, uh, the postpartum depression was so bad, I was scared to let the doctor know because I thought for some reason in my head, I was thinking that my kids were going to be taken away from me. But every time my ex-husband would leave out the door after cooking in the evenings, I started having panic attacks and uh, my mental and emotional state was not well. And so uh, I was dealing with this day in and day out. And I remember right, right under two weeks, probably somewhere around 10 days, a good family uh, friend of ours ended up passing away. And I normally wouldn't be one to be quick to run out to try to go somewhere after having a baby. But uh, so my ex-husband mentioned about the funeral. I was like, I'm going with you. And this was, I was only uh, 10 days post-delivery. And I remember my ex-mother-in-law seeing me at the funeral. She said, girl, I can't believe you. Katina, you came out and you still got the baby smell on you. And that didn't make me feel good because of what she said and at the same time what she didn't know and my mother didn't know no one else knew I so needed to be out that day I was like I needed it for survival that's how bad the postpartum depression got and as I mentioned before when it comes to trauma it's lessened when you have someone to walk through it with you so if I had invited people in I would not have had to suffer so and so the post uh the uh Postpartum depression, once that ended, then I had a layer of regular depression. This went on until my daughter was almost three years old. The way that I was able to make it, though, to put one foot in front of the other for the power to chapter life, even dealing with depression by myself, is every day I said in my mind, no matter how much I'm, how I'm feeling, I'm going to get up, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that with the kids. And I kept myself busy. I kept myself moving forward 
And when negative thoughts would be in my head, I'm like, no, stop, Tina, we're not going to go there. And so that was my moving forward for what I knew how to do then, which was a good thing as far as me having some type of plan of moving forward. What I didn't realize when I was telling myself to stop, I was constricting my stomach, which was preventing my emotions from fully having control to come out and allow me to grieve, which probably would have taken me out of the depression sooner. I did not realize that. The tools that I have now are not the tools that I had then. So I was doing the best that I could with the information that I had at the time. And so a lot of times we want to judge ourselves today for what it was we didn't know uh, for what it was that happened way back then when we didn't have the same type of information, the same wisdom, the same experience, and et cetera, on and on and on. And so, uh, but me talking myself down, talking to myself every day, putting one foot in front of the other. And like I said, this was almost three years before I felt like the old Tina again. And um, had I known and just reached out instead of being so fearful of what other people are going to think. And then you got the, also the, the layer of being a uh, black superwoman and taking care of everything on your own which I didn't have to do, but I was still afraid about that and afraid of, okay, what's going to happen if I take antidepressants? And like I said, I didn't know that if I at least allowed some of those emotions to come in and have gotten it out, then it would have been better. It would have lightened up the depression, but I didn't realize at the time when I was telling myself, no, I was constricting my stomach at the same time. And I can remember sometimes bathing my daughter when she was a toddler and telling myself that when I started having like certain things going on in my head, but praise God, that was my embracing and empower new chapter, like those steps of being able to move myself forward out of that for what I knew at the time. And a lot of times we will get stuck in something because we feel that, okay, this is not going to get better. It's just going to remain like this forever. The devil is a liar. We can get out of it. And as I mentioned, when we go through trauma, if we can immediately connect to somebody physically would be good. If we can't, talking to them on the phone would be helpful as well. Like uh, what happened, let's see, this was 2019, August 2019, I got hit on my way to work. And so um, what ended up happening is, even though I was kind of like dissociating and disoriented, I called my mother I first tried to call my son and uh, he didn't answer after trying him for a few times. Then I called my mother, apologized for calling him so early and told her what happened. And after I talked to her for about 20 minutes, I said, okay, I can pull off now. Had I not done that, the idea that this happened alone out in the dark at that time of morning, uh, for something in the morning, I could see that it would have been so traumatic that I just would not have been able to, uh, I would have had a hard time. I won't say I wouldn't have been able to deal with it because I did have some tools then, but I would have had a hard time trying to uh, reacclimate myself to my routine. And for the first couple of days after the accident, the trauma didn't set in. But then once it set in, every time I got behind the wheel of the car, I kept thinking, what if somebody hits me? What if I don't stop enough time? Because I got hit, but I had to stop so that I wouldn't run the light. And it was slick and raining that morning. 
Okay. So, but me being able to talk to her for that comfort, oh my goodness, it helped out 100%. But after my daughter, I did not have uh, the physical or emotional support that I needed because I kept everything to myself. And so I'm saying this to help someone out there who thinks that you have to carry all of that alone because you don't have to. Yes, the Lord is there to, to help us through, to be there when no one else is there. However, we need that community in order for us to heal. We need people back up in our corners to help us to walk through this process. And before I end this episode, I'm just going to read from Genesis 35, 16 through 18, where it says, Jacob and his group left Bethel. Before they came to Ephrath, Rachel began giving birth to her baby. She was having a lot of trouble with this birth. She was in great pain. When her nurse saw this, she said, don't be afraid, Rachel. You are giving birth to another son. So Rachel had this support there. The nurse telling her, don't be afraid. You know, you got us here. And she must have been able to tell that uh, something was wrong. But the nurse was reassuring her. And it said Rachel died by giving birth to the son. Before dying, she named the boy Benoni. But Jacob called him Benjamin. So this had to be their traumatic story. Here it is. You're thinking you're going, you're heading to Bethlehem. You're heading back to where you feel the Lord has told you to go. You and your family and your wife goes into labor. And you're like, oh, this baby's going to be born. But it just, it turns into a traumatic birth story. So what can we do as far as having an empowered new chapter of life after a traumatic birth story? Give ourselves time, give ourselves space, have safe people to talk to, use that support system, that community to reach out, to talk, no matter how bad it is, because uh, you don't have to wait to like I did and have a whole th almost three, basically a three year situation of dealing with this whole thing by yourself. We are not meant to uh, go through life's traumas and tribulations alone. We are meant to do it with other sisters and brothers in Christ. And uh, just one, whatever is the very next step we can do, whatever is the very next step we can take is what it is that we need in order for us to uh, be able to move forward. And then when we're trying to move forward, we can ask ourselves these questions. What methods have I used in the past to solve these problems? Okay, well, if it's the first time you give it birth, what methods have I used in the past to solve emotional trauma? If you've not had emotional trauma, what methods have other people who love me and I trust have used to help them solve emotional trauma? Someone in our network has had something to go on. And then we can shift our old ways of thinking and reframing the whole situation. Uh, having birth story trauma uh, is traumatic. Birth story trauma is something that's totally unpredictable and it's totally like causes a 360 because you're not expecting it. And so being able to reframe your thinking about what happened and being able to move forward is very important to see the challenges that were there, but then the opportunities that came along because it happened. Not saying we're being thankful for it happening. But the opportunities that came out of it, of you being able to encourage someone else and being able to know, like, this is what happened to me. 
this is what I can tell you that I did or failed to do that prevented me from having a better, empowered new chapter of life, so being able to uh, more so embrace that. Okay, and then um, realizing that in order for you to move forward, you've got to heal from those past hurts. You have to heal from birth story trauma. And if we want to create a satisfied future that uh, hinges upon healing from our past hurts, because what happens is we have uh, the healing from past hurts is in the middle. We get the resilience and perspective on the other side. And then uh, on the left side, we've got whatever the hurt is. The middle is the healing. That's the process. The left side is the hurt. And then on the right side, we have the perspective and resilience that comes from going through the middle process. We can't skip and go around it, but we would like to. So, and then another thing, writing helps us to notice different patterns of behavior. It helps us to heal by talking about our words. My therapist used to always tell my words have emotions attached to them. And as you're healing, when you become more integrated, you realize, oh, I see what she means. So, one story you might be able to tell reporter style, and the next time when you tell that story, it might be very hard for you to tell that story because you have healed your words and your emotions are more so integrated and the pain is there and it is raw. I want to thank you for listening to episode 109, creating an empowered new chapter of life after birth story trauma. I also want to thank Timothy Horton for bringing our intro and outro music every week, which is entitled Valley of Grace. And if you uh, want something to help you, you have decided to take the steps to move forward and creating an empowered new chapter of life. You are wanting to reclaim your identity and your power so that in turn you can create an empowered new chapter of life, but you don't have anything to help you as far as worship music to carry you along the way. Some song that helps to minister to your soul, to help to remind you, I don't have to go back to these cycles. I don't have to continue trying to control the other person. I can change myself and my change will in turn attract change in the other person, whether it's good or bad. But I don't have to do this alone. I don't have to stay in a state of languishing or feeling hopeless and like I don't have the music to support me in this. So if you can, you want, you can go and download the Valley of Grace song from Amazon. It's out there for purchase and you can get it on iTunes as well. Part of the lyrics, I won't go back to the way it used to be. I won't go back again. And so uh, when it comes to those unhealthy relationship patterns, we need that reminder. I won't go back to the way it was again. Okay. We need to feel like we're being held by the Lord. And uh, I just want to thank you for being faithful listeners. Uh, Thank you for your support. And if Valley of Grace podcast is making a difference in your life, you can go out there and leave a review. We're available on Stitcher. We're out there on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, and wherever, pretty much wherever you listen to podcasts, we're out there. Until next time. But I'm not intact to be sharing.
天。